Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to Mind Love, episode 96. Today's episode is all about how to manage distraction and control our attention. For many of us, we have become habituated to turning to a distraction when we don't want to feel that uncomfortable sensation. I'm at a party and I don't feel very comfortable around other people, so I'll just look at my phone because it provides escape. I'm at my desk and I've got to work on that big project I don't really feel like doing, so I'll do a bunch of other little tasks that I know are not as important, but at least they're not as hard as the thing I know I really need to do. The first step is recognizing that internal trigger. What's that discomfort you're looking to escape? And then being honest with yourself and writing it down talking to yourself in that third person to give yourself a little bit of space between that emotion, that uncomfortable sensation, and the action of actually getting distracted. And then another technique that we can use is called the 10-minute rule. Turn up your frequency with Mind Love. Bite-sized brain hacks for seekers, dreamers, and doers. It's time to give your mind a little love with your host, Melissa Monti. Hi, friends and wild people. First off, if you haven't subscribed to the podcast yet, please hit the subscribe button. More subscribers means even better guests and tons more value. Plus, it helps me grow the show so more people can find it. And if you ask me, everyone could use a little more mind love. Today, we have one of the most practical and action-packed episodes ever. But let's start it with a question. What if technology is not to blame for our distraction? I think we all can agree as a whole that we're pretty distracted, right? Our phones have changed the way we experienced waiting in lines forever. Remember when people actually read the tabloids at the grocery store, like just for something to do? When was the last time you saw that? Back in episode 91, we talked to Brian Stolis about tech addiction and how to actually take the steps to detox and fix our brains. That was one of those episodes that was so necessary, it practically went viral overnight. But what if technology isn't the real problem? Or at least not the root of the problem? If our phones were really to blame, that means that if I took your phone from you for one week, it should guarantee that you accomplish all of those goals you've been putting off, right? Yes, my phone takes a lot of my time, but if it was really the problem, then what excuse did I have in college when I still had a flip phone? You know, the kind where you had to press the number two three times to type the letter C? I really had no trouble peeling my eyes away from that user experience. There wasn't much to do other than playing snake and making sure I had the correct address to the party that night, which admittedly in my college lifestyle was quite a bit of time. But my point is without the endless apps and gadgets that we have now, I was still procrastinating everything to the last minute. I was still finding ways to distract myself from what my soul really wanted to do, or really even tuning into myself enough in the first place to discover what that was. So today we're talking to Nir Eyal. He's the best-selling author of a book that you might recognize called Hooked on how to build habit-forming products. So basically the opposite of what we're talking about today. But his newest book is called Indistractable. 
how to control your attention and choose your life. He's taught at the Stanford School of Business, and his writing on tech and psychology is in the Harvard Business Review, The Atlantic, TechCrunch, all the places that make him pretty badass. I really love this interview, though. Nir is so, so knowledgeable. His voice is just fun to listen to, and I learned a ton. And I know none of you want to reach the end of your life realizing how much of it you wasted, so pay attention to this episode. Three key things we will learn are why the opposite of distraction is not focus and what it really is, how to use our natural tendencies for good, and how to build traction towards the things we really want in life. Real quick, have you signed up for the morning mind love yet? Sometimes waking up on the right side of the bed can be a little difficult. The Morning Mind Love delivers short messages to your inbox with a thought or a tip to start each day on a positive note. I get messages from people every single day about how the Morning Mind Love is their favorite way to start the day, or that the message that came through is exactly what they needed to hear. Just visit mindlove.com and sign up right there on the homepage. Plus, you'll get some amazing free gifts when you do. You'll get a free guided binaural affirmation meditation designed to rewire your brain to your highest self. And you'll get one of my favorite tools, a really cool booklet of power lists to help you gain clarity and live with intention. And it's all completely free. Just go to mindlove.com to sign up. Or if you're out and about, just text the word morning to 33777. That's morning to 33777. And now let's welcome Nir Eyal to the show. Thank you. Great to be here. So I am so curious about your newest book because you started out teaching people how to create products that stick with Hooked, and mm -hmm. now it, you're kind of helping us become unstuck from these products. So what happened with that shift? Yeah, so it, it seems like it's a contradiction, but it's really not. You know, the idea here behind Hooked was to use consumer psychology to help us build the kind of products and services that help people build healthy habits. If you think about you know, the kind of products that have used my first book, Hooked, these are companies like Fitbod that's help people create an exercise habit in the gym. Kahoot, the world's largest educational software, uses the Hook model to keep kids engaged in the classroom. Paga is an app that brought millions of previously unbanked people online for the first time in sub-Saharan Africa. So we can use these same technologies and techniques to help people form healthy habits in their life. However, we can also use the same understanding, the same insights into consumer psychology to help us make sure that we don't overuse some of these devices. And so that's what I'm trying to do with this next book with Indistractable is to give people the knowledge and to empower them with the ability to avoid distractions that don't serve them. So is this something that was prompted because you were struggling with it as, as well? Absolutely. I mean, that's why I write books, frankly. <laughs> I mean, I'm very happy if other people benefit from it as well and want to hear about these, you know, my five years of research. But at the end of the day, research is me search. And uh, I had uh, an acute problem with distraction. Kind of the seminal moment was when I was with my daughter. We were together one afternoon and we had this book of activities that daddies and daughters could play together. And one of the activities in the book was to ask each other this question If you could have any superpower, what superpower would you want? And uh, I wish I could tell you what she said in that moment, but I can't because when, I, when she was telling me her answer, I was busy looking at my phone. If I told you this was the only time it happened, I'd be lying. The next thing I knew, I looked up from my phone and she was outside the room. She had found some toy to play with in the other room and left because she'd gotten the message that whatever was on my phone was more important than she was. 
And uh, that's when I really realized, wow, I have to do something about this because it wasn't just these moments with my daughter, which I feel awful about. It was also the fact that when I would try and get work done, I would sit down at my desk and say, okay, now I'm going to do that project I've been putting off. Now I'm finally going to get to work right after I check email or the news, or let me just Google something real quick. And of course, you know, 30, 45 minutes later, I was distracted and didn't get done what I wanted to get done. It's the same principle that kept me from exercising regularly or eating right. All of these things are forms of distraction. So what I originally thought actually would be a book about digital distraction turned into a book into an inquiry of why do we get distracted by all sorts of things, right? What's the deeper psychology of distraction? And what I learned to my surprise is that this is much deeper than just our tech tools. It's so interesting because I was looking back at the span of my life and recently I have been very aware of how distracted I have been and what it's been taking away. So I've been practicing more mindful habits and trying little tricks to break that distraction. But I was thinking about in my early 20s, I remember actually thinking, wow, what a great time to be alive. There are so many options for entertainment. I'll never be bored again. And you're right. It is like we want to be distracted. I was thinking back to that time and realizing that I was also in the most pain and the most just inner turmoil than I've ever been. So mm. is that where this desire to distract comes from? Yeah, absolutely. So before we get into why do we get distracted, we should probably define a few things, starting with what is distraction exactly? When we use this term, what are we talking about? So the best way to understand what distraction is, is to understand what it is not. The opposite of distraction is not focus. The opposite of distraction is traction. That both words, traction and distraction, come from the same Latin root, trahare, which means to pull. And if you notice, both traction and distraction end in the same five-letter word. They both end in A-C-T-I-O-N that spells action. So traction is any action that pulls you towards what you want to do, things you do with intent. The opposite of traction is distraction, any action that pulls you away from what you plan to do. This is important to realize for a few reasons. One, it frees us from this moral judgment that some things, some pastimes are somehow bad and that others are good, right? That, you know, you playing Candy Crush is somehow morally inferior to me uh, playing a crossword game or watching football on TV. There's no difference. They are all pastimes and they are all perfectly fine. And I reject this tech criticism and this uh, knee jerk reaction just because the technology is new. This is what happens every generation. We freak out about the latest tech tools, whether, you know, today it's social media and video games, before it was television, before that it was the radio, the comic books, heavy metal music. I mean, the list goes on and on and on of things that people freaked out about, all the way back to Socrates, who complained about this invention that would enfeeble men's minds, which was the written word. This is a long history of, of freaking out about uh, different technological innovations, but it turns out that anything can be a distraction and anything that we plan to do with intent that's consistent with our values can be an act of traction. So it's not necessarily about the, what you do. It's not like we have good wastes of time or good uh, pastimes and bad pastimes. It's about doing anything that you plan to do with intent, things that are consistent with your values that you plan to do. 
Just as pernicious are the distractions that we don't even realize are distractions. For example, you know, how many times have you sat at your desk and said, okay, now I'm going to do that big project. I'm going to do that thing I've been putting off. Only after I'll just do this one quick thing. And so you start emailing because that feels productive, right? That feels good. I'm doing something kind of worky, right? I need to, I need to do that anyway. But that is just as much of a distraction if it's not what you planned to do with your time. So it's really about planning ahead with intent. Okay, so now we got traction, we got distraction. Now what drives us towards traction and distraction are triggers. Now there are two types of triggers. We have external triggers. These are things in our environment that prompt us to action. So these are all the pings, the dings, the things that prompt us to either traction or distraction. And of course, if it leads us to something we want to do, if it's an alarm clock, for example, that tells you, hey, it's now time to get up and go work out, well, that led you towards traction. But if it's a notification on your phone when you're with your daughter and you plan to be fully present with someone you love, well, now it's moved you towards distraction. So those are the external triggers. But the most prevalent source of distraction has nothing to do with the external triggers. In fact, they are from internal triggers. Internal triggers are these uncomfortable emotional states that we seek to escape. That in fact, all human behavior comes from this desire to escape discomfort. And we have to understand this. This is incredibly important. This is called the homeostatic response, that when we feel discomfort, that is the brain's way of making us do something to fix that discomfort. Even the desire for pleasure. Most people think that motivation is all about the pursuit of pleasure and the avoidance of pain, right? This is called Freud's pleasure principle. Turns out it's not true. That everything we do is about the desire to escape discomfort. So even pursuing pleasure is itself psychologically destabilizing. Craving something, wanting, desire. There's a reason we say love hurts because neurologically speaking, it's exactly what's going on. So this means that if all behavior is prompted by a desire to escape discomfort, that means that time management is pain management. That if we want to get ourselves to do the things we know we need to do, we have to start with step one to becoming indistractable, which is to master our internal triggers. That's where most distraction comes from. When we're feeling bored, we check the news, we check sports scores, Reddit, Pinterest. When we're lonely, we check Facebook or Instagram. When we're uncertain, we Google something. All of these internal triggers spark our actions, everything we do. And so to truly control our actions and to control our time and our life, we have to start there by mastering these internal triggers. But that's just step one of four. What's interesting to me is that a lot of listeners know my story, and I had so many addictions from eating disorders to party drugs to... I was addicted to gummy bears for like six months. <laughs> like If it was there, I could be addicted to it. And it does make sense following some trauma I had or just painful times in my life that I was looking for more of an escape than the average person. But it is pretty obvious when you look at multiple people that some of them are much more prone to these distractions or even addictions than other people. Would you say that that's biology or would it be maybe more relatable to me where I had I mean, I think it's almost a combination of both for me, but I definitely had a lot of pain that I was trying to escape. And if this is your first time giving your mind a little love, I have a few goodies for you. First, don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And second, sign up for the Morning Mind Love. 
Think of it like a weekday oracle from your highest self to help you start each day with a positive focus. Plus, you'll get two gifts absolutely free, a 30-minute binaural meditation and 30 days of journaling prompts to help you remember who you truly are. So join over 9,000 people and go to mindlove.com to sign up or text the word morning to 33777. We're all here just trying to live our best lives, right? And while you're here listening to a podcast, you might feel like you're on the right track, but then you visit family or you have a work deadline or something unexpected comes up and you're all stressed out and it feels like all the work is out the window. That's why it's so important to consciously curate what you can control, like who you surround yourself with, what you watch, what you listen to. So I'm going to add another podcast to your toolbox, The Dr. John Deloney Show. He has a PhD in counseling and has been sitting with hurting people for 20 years. He shares practical advice for everything from how to connect with people, how to face depression, overcome anxiety, and learn just what it means to be well. But what's really cool about his show is you can even leave a voicemail or send an email and he'll address your topic or question about mental or emotional help on the show. So no matter what you're going through, the Dr. John Deloney show is here for you. Listen to the Dr. John Deloney show wherever you get your podcasts or follow the link on the website. So addiction, we have to be very precise about these terms. Some people do get addicted to some things, of course. In fact, anything that solves pain, if it's used by a sufficiently large number of people, will be addicted by somebody. But that doesn't mean everyone gets addicted, right? And so an addiction is a pathology. It's about 1% to 5% of the population, depending on the substance. Sometimes, it, you know, with certain things, it can go even up to as high as 9% of the population. But again, these are single-digit percentages. It's for the vast majority of people, they are not facing addiction. And in fact, I'm trying to fight against this overuse of the term. This is a medical term. An addiction is a pathology. However, the problem is when we tell people that you know, technology is addictive, that it's hijacking your brain, that it's making you do things. In fact, we know that this leads to learned helplessness, that people begin to believe, oh, the reason I act this way is because I can't help it. You know, these devices are doing it to me. My kids are acting crazy because the video games, they're just hijacking their brains. And they use this as an excuse, as opposed to respecting the people who actually do struggle with the real pathology. And when it comes to actual addiction, it's a confluence of factors. Addiction is never just about the substance. Nobody steps on a heroin needle and becomes addicted. That's just not how it works. Addiction is always a confluence of three factors, the person, the pain, and the product. So of course, the product plays a role, certainly, and we don't really know exactly why some people tend to gravitate to some substances versus others. One theory is that you're, it's called the needs displacement hypothesis, that you look for the kind of relief that certain substances or behaviors can provide because that's what you're missing. So for example, opioids provide this feeling of euphoric, loving embrace that some people describe. And so if you're missing that, that might be something you gravitate towards. But the kind of person who gets addicted to gaming or gambling or cocaine is looking for something a little bit different. So that's one hypothesis, that's around the product. That's one factor. Then you have the person, and that person has some kind of predilection for addiction because of previous trauma, could be some type of other comorbidity they're struggling with. We know that there's a very, very high comorbidity with addiction and obsessive compulsive disorder, very, very high comorbidity. 
And then finally, the third factor is the pain. And this is the critical component a lot of people overlook. And I think that's starting to change now in the addiction treatment community now with trauma-based treatments, where what we're doing is we're looking for what is the trauma you are looking to escape? Because what addiction and distraction have in common is that they are both emotional pacifiers. People who understand addiction know that addicts don't look for the high. That's the difference between someone who is a recreational user and an addict. A recreational user looks for the high. An addict wants to not feel the low. And that's a big, big difference. That the kind of person who gets addicted to a substance and can't stop without some kind of intervention, without some kind of help from outsiders, it becomes a very, very difficult thing to stop, is the kind of person who is looking to escape some kind of severe discomfort. And you know, we know these, there's been many studies on this. So one of the best examples is the Vietnam vet study that found that about a third of veterans, a third of troops who were in Vietnam were using some kind of illicit substance like heroin. And yet when they came back, they thought the Nixon administration thought there would be this huge epidemic and it didn't happen because when they came back and they were out of the hellscape of the Vietnam War, they didn't need that kind of escape. In many ways, that was a perfectly rational thing to do if you were over there and you were just trying to survive and get out of your head and trying to avoid the, the incredible psychological toll the war would take on you. You would try and escape with some kind of substance. But when they came back, the number of troops that continued to use was much, much lower because they were out of this very traumatic circumstance, this environment. And so we have to realize that, that addiction is never just about the substance. This idea that, oh, drugs cause drug addiction, that tech causes tech addiction, it's never that simple. And unfortunately, the media likes to propagate this type of story, and I, I think it's very counterproductive, because one, it doesn't pay proper respect to people who actually struggle with the pathology by making it sound like, well, everybody's addicted. And two, it doesn't help the vast majority of people, you know, 90 to 99% of the population that doesn't have a pathology and yet is using this myth that we're being controlled, that there's nothing they can do as an excuse for actually doing something about the problem. I have these mixed feelings about labels in general. I was just talking to somebody recently about how a label for something, even if it is, or an explanation even, can make us suddenly feel a little bit more understood or like there's actually a term for this. Now I know how to deal with it. But on the other side, I think that we have such a great tendency to identify with these things and use them as excuses. And I definitely have over the years, I went through all of those issues. And it's like, mm -hmm. I did have some serious addictions like bulimia. But on the other hand, I started to really believe that I just had such an addictive tendency and it mm. still comes out in some of the language I say now that I have to be very careful. And so now it's like, I know I have to be careful about certain things. It's a lot easier now that I've gotten my life into a different place. But at mm -hmm. the same time, it's so easy to just use that as an excuse. Yeah, I think labels can be useful if they are empowering. We know that some of the language that folks use around thinking of themselves as being an addictive personality can actually backfire in many ways because if the term doesn't give you agency, doesn't make you feel like you can do something about it. For example, if you say, look, I'm someone who has a tendency towards addiction, but I can do something about it and you can make it a term of empowerment, it's very useful. Now I know what kind of treatment I need. Now I know what I need to do next. And that can be very empowering. But if you say to yourself this myth of, well, I am what I am. 
I was born this way. And then when it comes to, you know, of course, there are several things that people can't change by, by birth, but there are lots of things we can change after birth. And so when it comes to some of these properties, I think it's very difficult to generalize. You know, if you're struggling with a severe case of obsessive compulsive disorder, breaking an addiction can be incredibly difficult. As I mentioned, you know, there's a very high comorbidity between OCD and addiction. It can be very, very hard to break. However, if you don't struggle with something like OCD, and most people who struggle with addiction, the number one recovery program is age. It's not AA. AA has about a 12% recovery program. The number one recovery program is time. People slipping out of difficult circumstances in their life, their life gets better, they have more reasons to be present mentally, they decide to make different choices in their life, their life circumstances change, the pain in their life that they were trying to escape from might have changed, and they are able to therefore not depend upon a substance the way they did previously. And this is a lesson for all of us, not just people who are struggling with addiction. And by the way, for a lot more on this, there's two great books I'd like to recommend. Memoirs of an Addicted Brain is a fantastic book, and Lost Connections, another fantastic book on this topic. There are many others as well that go into further depth around this point of view, around addiction, that it's not just the substance, it's this confluence of factors. But there's a lesson here to be learned for all of us, not just people who struggle with addiction, but those of us who struggle with distraction, that we really have two choices when it comes to mastering these internal triggers. We can either change the circumstances, and we should, right? If you can change the source of the pain in your life that you are looking to escape from with distraction, and we need to start by realizing that that's what we're doing, that we're using these tools, and I don't care if it's booze or Facebook, if you are using these tools for emotional pacification because it's easier and less painful to be online or be out of your mind in some way than to deal with what's going on in the real world, we need to start with that realization, accept that, that that is a perfectly normal human thing to do. All of us do everything for emotional pacification. It's not, you're not broken. You're not bad. That's what all of us do. That's what drives all of our behaviors. But that we have two choices. We can either change the source of that discomfort or where we can't change the source of discomfort, we need to learn tactics to cope with the discomfort. People have espoused one or the other. It's either, well, pull yourself up by your bootstraps and just change your life. Well, yeah, some things you can but a lot of things you can't. But then the other extreme is the folks who say, well, just meditate your problems away. <laughs> and that's not a great answer either. Meditation is wonderful. I highly recommend it. There's a lot of evidence that shows that meditation is wonderful, but that's not the only solution. There's all kinds of other things that you can do that don't require you to sit and do nothing or to sit and meditate, but to actually effectively use these internal triggers to help prompt you towards traction to things you want to do with your life as opposed to distraction. These aren't methods that I invented. I just collaborated them into one body of work, into one book that you can use as one system. But this comes out of decades old research from acceptance and commitment therapy, from a lot of the psychological literature that's been out there. And so that's really what I wanted to provide was kind of an all-in-one guide for thinking about distraction. Well, I guess I'm thinking, where do we start when it comes to this pain that we're dealing with? We all suffer from some sort of psychological discomfort in different areas. One person's might be completely different of another person's. So if we're so used to being distracted and not turning that focus inward, how do we start to identify the psychological discomfort that leads us off track in the first place? Yeah. So the first step is to note the sensation. And the book comes with a distraction tracker you can download on my website as well. And it's just basically like a spreadsheet type thing where we start becoming aware 
of the preceding sensation. Okay, that's the first step. And that's a huge step. It's not necessarily an easy step because for many of us, we have become habituated to turning to a distraction when we don't want to feel that uncomfortable sensation. So I'm at a party and I don't feel very comfortable around other people, so I'll just look at my phone because it provides escape. I'm at my desk and I've got to work on that big project I don't really feel like doing, so I'll do a bunch of other little tasks that I know are not as important, but at least they're not as hard as the, the thing I need or know I really need to do. You're a teenager and your family drives you crazy and you don't want to actually talk about why they drive you crazy, so you hang out on your phone while you're at dinner. I mean, that can go on and on and on. But essentially, it's about, first and foremost, recognizing that internal trigger. What's that discomfort you're looking to escape? And then being honest with yourself and writing it down. Just that act of putting it down on paper is incredibly empowering because now you have said to yourself, okay, I got it. That's what is driving me to this behavior. And one effective technique is actually talking to yourself in the third person. A lot of people, when they act on one of these distractions, they don't notice the internal triggers and they berate themselves, as I used to do. In fact, I would tell myself, oh my gosh, I'm so distractible. I can't get anything done. My work ethic sucks. I would beat myself up. I mean, if I talked to my friends the way I talk to myself, <laughs> nobody would want to be my friend. You know, we're always our own worst enemies when we're, you know, when we have perfectionist tendencies. But instead of talking to ourselves with contempt, we need to talk to ourselves with curiosity. And we can do that by, you know, in slow motion, talking to ourselves coolly and calmly and with curiosity to try and understand, oh, okay, there I go. I want to check my phone right now because this project is really hard work. So talking to yourself in that third person. So after you write down that sensation of feeling bored, feeling frustrated, talking to yourself in that third person to give yourself a little bit of space between that emotion, that uncomfortable sensation, and the action of actually getting distracted. And then another technique that we can use is called the 10-minute rule, where we give ourselves just 10 minutes to do what's called surfing the urge. And surfing the urge just requires being curious about that sensation as opposed to cursing ourselves or, or saying that we're bad. We're just exploring that sensation for 10 minutes or getting back to the task at hand. So many times if I, you know, writing for me is still hard. I've written two books and it's still something I struggle with. It's, you know, I wrote this book not because I have good self-control, but because I don't have good self-control. I need good self-control. That's why I wrote this book because I wanted the answer. And so every day when I am tempted towards distraction, I will oftentimes say to my phone, hey Siri, set a timer for 10 minutes. And for those 10 minutes, I surf the urge. I just feel that sensation or I get back to work. Now, if at the end of those 10 minutes, I still want to give into that temptation, whether it's a piece of chocolate cake or uh, checking email when I know I should be working on something that requires focus, I let myself do it. Because what we don't want to do is ruminate. Many people, when they decide that they have to abstain completely from something, and of course, there are certain substances that we do want to abstain from completely. But when that becomes something that we then ruminate on, what people do is they say, okay, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it, don't, okay, fine, I'll do it. And that relief of tension, remember, all action is prompted by a desire to escape discomfort. So if you work yourself up into a frenzy, and I used to be clinically obese, I remember this very well, about don't eat it, don't eat it, don't eat it, don't eat it, okay, fine, I'll eat it. And that relief of tension can in fact be very pleasurable. It's almost like, sorry to use this as a little bit of a, a gross example, but you know when you really, really have to pee and it <laughs> feels good to oh, finally release it? That sensation is kind of what we feel when we abstain. 
And that's why I don't recommend when it comes to technology distraction in particular, you know, it's become very fashionable to do a digital detox or a 30 day plan. And it doesn't work for the same reason that fad diets don't work because by making it about abstinence, by making it about just don't do it, use all your self-control to excise it from your life. We know what happens after a 30 day diet. You go crazy on day 31 right? I've, I did this many times <laughs> and it doesn't work with diets and it doesn't work with digital distractions. What's much more effective is to understand the root cause of why you get distracted and have a list of a few tactics that you can use like surfing the urge, like the 10 minute rule, like reimagining the triggers. And there's you know, several other techniques I talk about in the book that you can take out of your repertoire and use those to effectively disarm these internal triggers that can lead to distraction. And now for another episode of Lies We've Been Told About Our Health. We've all heard we need eight glasses of water a day, right? Well, hydration isn't actually about water intake. It's about the balance of water and electrolytes so that our bodies are actually absorbing the water instead of just passing it through. A lot of people go for those sugary sports drinks, but let's be real, those do more harm than good. I've found a better solution. Element. It's a zero-sugar electrolyte drink that's all about effective hydration. Each pack gives you essential electrolytes like sodium and potassium without the unnecessary additives found in other drinks. The team behind Element includes experts in biochemistry and nutrition, so they really know what they're doing. And it's not just for everyday use either. Elite athletes and teams, Olympic weightlifters, CrossFit champions, Navy SEALs, all rely on it too, which to me says a lot about its effectiveness. Here's what makes them really unique. They recently launched a hot chocolate line with flavors like chocolate mint, chocolate chai, and chocolate raspberry. Ever since I went alcohol-free, I've been really intentional about luxurious, health-focused drinks so I can sit back and unwind while actually doing good for my body. And the Element Chocolate Chai is great for relaxing in the evening or warming up after winter sports. And you can try Element totally risk-free. If you don't like it, you'll get your money back, no questions asked. Receive a free Element sample pack with any order when you purchase through drinkelement.com slash mindlove. That's drinklmnt.com slash mindlove to get a free starter pack with any order. I'm constantly sharing with my clients to stop searching in life and instead start aligning. It's true with purpose, with relationships, with higher versions of yourself, and it's also true for hiring. The best way to search is actually just to match with Indeed. Indeed is your one-stop hiring platform with millions of job seekers visiting every month, and their powerful matching engine helps you find quality candidates fast. Plus, Indeed lets you schedule interviews, screen applicants, and message candidates all in one place. But Indeed isn't just about speed. They also deliver quality. According to a recent Indeed survey, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites. I love Indeed because it makes hiring so much easier. I'm all about alignment in all areas of my life, and that includes people I hire to work in my business. So I need a hiring partner that makes it simple to find candidates with the right skills. And that's Indeed. And what's really cool is Indeed's matching engine gets smarter the more you use it, learning from your preferences and over 140 million qualifications. Plus, I love that I can do all my hiring in one place. It's just one less thing to keep track of between 
all of the other things. So join over 3.5 million businesses worldwide who rely on Indeed to find great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash mindlove. Just go to Indeed.com slash mindlove right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash mindlove. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. It's amazing how so much of what you just said were the steps that I used to begin healing myself from bulimia. And one Mm. of those was, I'm like using it as an example because it is just such an extreme example, especially the way it was affecting me. And my first step was identifying what would first lead to these binge purge urges? Because Mm. what I found is willpower was not going to work for me when I was first trying to get out of that. It was so deeply ingrained that before I knew it, it was like this monster had taken control of me. I'd be having like this out-of-body experience, wondering why this thing that I wanted to stop so badly that was taking over my life, I couldn't. And I'd find myself in this destructive cycle that would last for even hours sometimes. And Mm -hmm. so the first step for me was starting to write down my triggers and not expecting necessarily that I was going to heal immediately, but start to write down the sensations and the feelings that my body was feeling right before I would go into a binge purge cycle. And I realized some patterns that I hadn't before. Like there were physical manifestations of this. Like my heart would start pounding a little bit. I would get a little bit more irritable. I would start kind of mentally planning. And then the next one, yeah, it was really helpful to remove triggers in my external environment, but also Ultimately, the time that I finally was sustainable for me was the least amount that I tried to really inhibit certain foods. It was more Mm -hmm. developing a better relationship with those things. And yeah, I still to this day don't like to keep certain things in the house just because I don't like to. But if there's something Mm -hmm. out, I allow myself a little indulgence and I am way less likely to succumb to one of those dangerous cycles now because I have a better relationship with my surroundings. It makes me feel more empowered. Right. Yeah. I think there's a lot of analogous techniques here and and psychology when it comes to managing our cravings or overuse or even addictions to food, to alcohol, and to, you know, these days technology. As I mentioned, the commonality behind all these things is that anything that solves pain is potentially addictive. We can use them to a point where we harm ourselves. And so it's really about getting down to those internal triggers first and foremost. That's not the only thing we can do. Uh, As you mentioned, you know, we can remove the external triggers and there's a lot we can do, particularly when it comes to distractions on our digital devices. There's a lot we can do to remove the external triggers. But at the end of the day, if we don't master those internal triggers, we'll always get distracted by something, right? Distraction is nothing new. It's not going anywhere. It always will be here. It's really about first and foremost, mastering those emotions. And if you can do that, that's really how we master our attention and our time. That's the very first step. One part of your book that I found fascinating were the psychological factors that make satisfaction temporary, especially Mm. the one about hedonic adaptation. Can you talk about those things and what they are? Sure. So I think something that has really been a disservice over the past few decades in the self-help personal development community is this idea that if we're not happy, if we're not satisfied all the time, if life isn't great, then something's wrong with us and nothing could be further from the truth. That in fact, from an evolutionary basis, we are built for discomfort. 
pleasure and happiness are designed to be temporary and fleeting sensations. It is a myth that you can be happy all the time or satisfied all the time that our base state is dissatisfaction. That doesn't, that's not misery. There's a big difference there, but it's not this, oh, I'm happy, happy, happy all the time. That's not how life is about. That's not how we're designed. In fact, if you think about it, if there were ever a tribe of homo sapiens who were satisfied and happy they were probably killed and eaten by our ancestors, right? <laughs> because, you know, if we think about it, being dissatisfied, dissatisfaction is in fact what propels us forward as a species. Wanting more is what helps us invent life-changing, uh, life-saving medicines. And uh, it helps us reach for the stars. It helps us make the world better. We want a bit of dissatisfaction in our life. And saying that suffering should be avoided in, in all regards by removing our consciousness from that suffering is in fact also an analgesic. It's also a, a form of escape. So instead, what I think we should do is to realize that these tendencies exist within us. And there are several I identify in the book. So one of them is hedonic adaptation. These are all points of evidence that prove that our species is not designed to be satisfied. <laughs> so hedonic adaptation says that, so when something really good happens to you or something really bad happens to you, that we tend to adjust to a baseline of satisfaction. So we've seen this with people who win the lottery. They're really happy at first, and then they go back to baseline. People who have terrible things happen to them, like people who previously were injured and then now have to be in a wheelchair, same thing happens. They're unhappy for a while, and then they return back to baseline. So that's one of these cognitive quirks. And then there are others as well. So we have boredom. We know that people will do all kinds of strange things to escape this feeling of boredom. There was a study conducted by Timothy Wilson where he put people in a room with nothing but an armband that would deliver an electrical shock if they pushed a button. And a significant number of people, and he told them, sit in this room and do nothing, right? And a significant number of people couldn't do nothing. <laughs> <laughs> to push this button to deliver a shock they knew would be uncomfortable, would be painful, because it was less painful to do something, to feel something, than to do nothing. Another is rumination, our tendency to keep chewing on things that happen to us to an unhealthy degree. That's another one of these cognitive quirks. There's many of these cognitive quirks built into us that can lead us to constant dissatisfaction. Now, of course, we can channel that for good. We can utilize that same desire for more to help guide us towards traction, towards things we want to do instead of leading us towards distraction. I totally relate to that boredom thing. It's like I was watching a video about how boredom is actually so good for our brain. And this was a light bulb moment for me where I'm like, man, I feel like I'm wasting time when I'm bored. So I'm reaching for something else. And I think that it's going to be productive by reading an article or something. And I, I was convincing myself I'm learning. So this is okay. But it's not giving our brains the time to actually explore or to come up with a new idea because we're consuming more than we're creating. So I yeah. totally feel that. Now that we know these things and we know these tendencies, how do we start to use these for good? How do we make things more enjoyable for us or start to harness our natural tendencies so that we can take more control of our lives, basically? 
Yeah, so step one is about mastering these internal triggers, and we can do that in three ways. We reimagine the trigger, which we talked about a little bit earlier with some of these techniques around surfing the urge, 10-minute rule, that's about reimagining the trigger. We can reimagine the task, and there are all kinds of methods we can use to make a dreary task more enjoyable, and not in the Mary Poppins way of adding a spoonful of sugar. There's a lot of evidence that shows that adding extrinsic rewards, like some kind of you know reward at the end of doing something hard, is actually can backfire if you have to do that task repeatedly. So it's not about adding these extrinsic rewards or a spoonful of sugar. It's actually about finding ways to make the task itself something that you can play. In the word of one expert I, I talked to, Ian Bogost has this methodology for learning how to play anything, he says. And then the third thing we can do is that we can reimagine our temperament. That in many ways, the way we talk to ourselves, the way we think about ourselves can really backfire. There's a lot of self-limiting beliefs that, that folks have that really aren't serving us. So those are the kind of the three techniques around mastering internal triggers. But that's all that's step one. Step two is to make time for traction. So remember earlier we talked about traction and distraction? Well, the second step to becoming indistractable is to make time for traction. And making time for traction is all about turning your values into time. You know, when I interviewed folks for, for Indistractable for this book, a lot of them told me how busy their lives were and how they couldn't get anything done. I remember one particular friend of mine just complained about all of these things that were preventing her from doing what she wanted to do between her boss and her coworkers and what was happening in the news. And she just couldn't focus on anything. Everything was a distraction these days. And so I said, wow, that's, that's really tough. Can I see what you plan to do today? Can I see what it was that you got distracted from? And she took out her calendar, or she took out her phone, and she opened her calendar app, and she showed it to me, and it was blank. There was nothing on it. <laughs> there was, you know, nothing on her calendar. And it turns out that two-thirds of Americans don't keep any sort of calendar. Now, here's the thing, folks. You can't call something a distraction unless you know what it distracted you from. So if you can't show me what it is you wanted to do with your time, Everything is a distraction. And in this day and age, if you don't plan your day, somebody's going to plan it for you. Your boss or your kids or your spouse or the news or Facebook, somebody is going to eat up that day unless you plan what you want to do with that time. So the reality is in this day and age, we have to plan our day in advance. Remember, the difference between traction and distraction is intent. It's what you planned to do with that time. So if you want to play video games, do it. Great. If you want to watch Netflix, do it. If you want to walk around and just let your brain wander or meditate or be creative and draw for a little bit and doodle, great. But in this day and age, if you don't plan that time, it's not going to happen. And so what we need to do is to turn our values into time with these three life domains of you, your relationships, and your work. And for each one of these three domains, we don't have to have some big lofty goals. You know, a lot of people start with the big aspirations in life. I say start with the little stuff. Start with the mundane tasks of hygiene and getting to sleep on time and cooking healthy meals for yourself and time to grow your knowledge, right? Is that time in your calendar according to your values, not according to my values, according to whatever it is you value. If you value physical fitness, right, values are defined as the attributes of the person we want to become. And so if the person you want to become is someone who values physical fitness, put that in your calendar. If you want to be the kind of person who spends time with close friends and family, put that in your calendar. If you're the kind of person who wants to make sure that they do certain tasks at work, that they're part of a team at work, that that's one of your values, 
put that in your calendar. And so we have to be very deliberate. I, this is called a time boxing technique, and it uses very old research. This is 20, 30-year-old research called setting an implementation intention. And it's one of the most well-studied and underutilized techniques. It's basically just a fancy way of saying, planning out what you're going to do and when you're going to do it. And it sounds so basic. It takes a little bit of work up front. I'll give you a link for the show notes. I built this tool to help people do this because unfortunately, a lot of the tools out there like Google Calendar are kind of just overbuilt for, for what you need. But basically all this means is just having a calendar with your ideal week planned down to the minute. Okay, I don't want any white space in that calendar. Now that doesn't mean you can't plan time to do nothing, that's fine, right? The time you plan to waste is not wasted time. So that's perfectly fine if you want time to do nothing. But I want that calendar to be full of how you want to live out your values. That's step two, and it's a life changer. It sounds like it's a lot of work. It'll take you 30 minutes the first time and 15 minutes of maintenance per week, and it will change your life. I love that quote. The time you plan to waste is not wasted time. That's so tweetable. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> It's so true because, you know, people moralize these things and say, oh, I, you know, I feel bad that I watched Netflix or I feel bad that I played a video game. No, there's nothing wrong with that stuff. As long as you do it on your schedule, not on some tech company schedule. Yeah, I live by my calendar. I have the self journal, my best self company. And I mm -hmm. found that I have to plan my day the night before, because even when I try to do it in the morning, I'm more likely to decide my day based on the emotions or what I'm currently feeling. Whereas if I'm doing it the night before, it doesn't seem like, okay, this is what I'm doing next. So I don't have that desire to talk myself out of it as much. But even right. if I have these intentions just in my mind where I'm like, okay, tomorrow I'm going to work on this digital course and edit the podcast. It is so easy not to do something if you haven't already made that commitment, even just with yourself it'll just get away from me. I'll be like, oh, I'll start in an hour. I'll start in an hour. And the next thing I know, I'm watching a Gilmore Girls rerun marathon, <laughs> drinking a bottle of wine. <laughs> it's so true. It's so true. And it, it's so important to do this stuff with intent, to actually plan out that calendar. And once you get into this routine of doing it, so many aspects of your life change. I remember with my wife in particular, you know, we kept getting into these disagreements around household responsibilities. Now, we, we've been married for almost 20 years. And we would get into these fights around household responsibilities. And somehow it felt like I never was pulling my weight. And it turns out I'm not alone, that among heterosexual couples, still, even in two income households, women tend to take on way more of the household admin tasks. There's a lot of reasons why this is happening, but I'm embarrassed to say that I was one of these men that was kind of taking advantage. And I didn't even realize it. And I would always say to my wife, just tell me what to do, right? If you need something done, just tell me what to do. What I didn't realize is that I was making her work this second shift after work with all of these household tasks because telling me what to do and how to help was itself work. And I didn't realize <laughs> that and I feel horrible about it now, but now I realize it. And it wasn't until I started writing this book and realizing, wow, this is the source of our problem, that what was happening was that in our household responsibilities, we didn't define what those were. Not only by the tasks, right? A lot of couples keep to-do lists and hear, honey, do this, honey, do that, but that's not good enough. The to-do list is the output, okay? But what matters just as much as the output is, of course, the input. What's the input? The input is time. 
And so on our calendars now, not only does it say what we have to do for, you know, taking care of the household responsibilities, but also when those things happen in my calendar, there's no uncertainty about when that stuff is going to happen. I know exactly when it's going to happen. And so that's totally changed our relationship. It's improved it tremendously. Well, because we began this journey and you kind of began the journey of writing this book because of this moment that you had with your daughter. I am curious, though, because we said that, yes, tech isn't the biggest problem. It's not the only problem. It's really our tendency to get distracted by everything. But there's also this science going around that these little notifications are spending so much time on a screen so close to your face can change our brains a little bit. I'm wondering how you're dealing with these kind of technology distractions or whatever with your daughter. Are you limiting that screen time? Are you teaching her about this stuff at the same time? What do you do as a parent? I'm glad you asked. This is a really important area. There's one takeaway from the book. It's to look at the root cause, not the proximal cause. The proximal cause is what's in our hands, right? It's what we're doing with our time. It's it's the phones, it's the games, it's the social networks, whatever it might be. That's the proximal cause. The root cause goes much, much deeper. And I think the section of the book I really implore parents to read is the section about how to raise an indistractable child. Because I, you know, I'm the father of an 11 year old girl now, and I will tell you that as a parent, I love convenient excuses. Love them, love them. <laughs> I, one of the ones that I profile in the book is the sugar high. Turns out there is no such thing as the sugar high. Multiple studies have confirmed that it's very, very doubtful that this that there's out. any kind of yes. <laughs> yep. I, not only studies. There are meta studies. So studies of studies have shown that there is no such thing as a sugar high, except for, okay, so just so we're clear, sugar high, for those who who might not know what it is, is the idea that if your kid eats a bunch of sugar, they go crazy, they're all rambunctious, you can't get it under control because they're high on sugar. They become spastic because of ingesting sugar. That's not true. It doesn't exist. What does exist is the effect of sugar on parents. So in a study where they told parents that their children had consumed sugar when they hadn't, and then they follow these parents around, they observe them to see what they did. They found that these parents who believed their kid had ingested sugar, not only (laughs) believed that their kids were acting crazy because of a sugar high, even when they hadn't ingested sugar, they didn't know that, but they also followed their kids around. They berated their kids. They treated them differently thinking that they were having their minds controlled by sugar. So that's just one of many, many excuses that we parents love to rely upon because it frees us from having to deal with the real issue. And by the way, parents have done this forever, right? That before it was social media and Fortnite and video games before that, you know, it was television and heavy metal and rap music and comic books. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. But parents have done this for a very, very long time. And so here's the facts. Okay, the facts are that we have to first and foremost give our kids age-appropriate content, not only for the screen, but for any medium. Look, if my child walks into a library, okay, there are lots of books I do not want an 11-year-old to read. There's lots of content she's not ready to consume. And those are books, right? Books are supposed to be very good for us, right? Well, no, if it's not age-appropriate, it's not good for our children. But one of the easiest things you can do is follow these companies' rules around when to let your kid access these technologies. So if Facebook and Instagram and TikTok and WhatsApp all tell you, don't let anyone under 13 use this, 
don't let anyone under 13 use it. (laughs) (laughs) The company itself is telling you not to let your kid use it. And if your kid says, well, everybody's using Instagram. So if they're not of the right age for it, they're not ready for it. And so I advise first and foremost, follow the company's directions are on when something is age appropriate. And certainly social media should not be used before the age of 13. Easy, easy rule. Second thing I, I want folks to know is that there is no study that shows that moderate amounts of age-appropriate screen time has any deleterious effects, okay? Where we see some negative effects is with excessive use of these devices, where there actually is data that shows that around two hours is totally fine, no effect on well-being, but there's actually negative effects on well-being for less than two hours. So around one hour a day, we see negative effects, and there are negative effects for three, four, five hours a day of too much extracurricular screen time. But of course, then we have to ask, what else is going on? Aren't there negative effects to three, four, five hours of any kind of media use, right? My daughter got into Harry Potter a few years ago, and look, five hours of Harry Potter is too much Harry Potter. And so we need to realize that moderate amounts of of screen time are perfectly fine as long as they're age appropriate. But if we really wanna go a layer deeper and ask ourselves, why do kids overuse, okay? Why do they spend so much time on on their devices? One thing that we like to say is, well, it's the devices. That's what's doing it to them. Okay, that's one hypothesis. Or maybe there's something deeper going on. And so back to what we talked about earlier, I mentioned it just briefly, the needs displacement hypothesis. The needs displacement hypothesis says that when you were not getting something in the real world, you look for it in the virtual world. And so I refer to the work of Desi and Ryan, who came up with this, what's called self-determination theory. This is the most widely studied and most widely accepted theory on human motivation. And Desi and Ryan propose that every human being on the face of the earth requires three things for psychological flourishing. We need competency, autonomy, and relatedness. And children in, in particular need this, right? This is, I call these psychological nutrients, kind of like the macronutrients that we need for our body, fat, carbohydrates, and protein. Well, the three psychological nutrients are competency, autonomy, and relatedness. So let's look at each one of these briefly, very quickly here. Competency is this need that we have to feel like we are mastering something, right? And so this sense of mastery is very important for our psychological well-being, and it's something that kids are being robbed of. Because around the same time that we see this increase in suicide among kids, you know, the the suicide rate has increased among teenagers, not as an all-time high, but it has increased from, from a historic low back around 2006, 2007. We've also seen the rise of compulsory standardized testing and teachers teaching towards the test. And so for a significant portion of the childhood population, they are being told, you are not competent. These tests tell kids, some of them three or four times a year that they need to do these standardized testing, they tell them, if you're not doing well, you are not competent. Well, they come home and there's a company that's more than happy to give them a sense of competency when they play Minecraft or Roblox or Fortnite or whatever, they feel competent and that feels good. Next, agency. We know, I'm sorry, autonomy. We know that human beings require a sense of autonomy, that we need to feel like we have a semblance of control, autonomy, agency in our life. Now, there are studies that show that the average American child today has 10 times as many rules and restrictions placed on them as an adult, twice as many an incarcerated felon. There are only two places in society where we allow people to be told what to do, where to go, what to think, what to eat, who to be friends with, and that is prison and school. 
And so are we surprised when our kids come home desperate for agency and autonomy that they go play video games where they feel like gods? Because they're desperate for a sense of agency and autonomy. And then finally, relatedness. We know that in this country, for the past 50 years, there has been a collapse in the number of hours that kids spend playing. When we were children, I grew up in the 80s, I was born in the 70s, but I grew up in the 80s, and neighborhoods were full of the sound of children playing. You don't hear that anymore. Kids are indoors all day, and why? For two reasons. One, either parents are scared to death that their kids are going to be abducted, you know, stranger danger, because the media tells people that this happens, even though it, it's incredibly rare. This is the safest time in American history to be a child. Or we so overschedule our children between Kumon and Mandarin and swimming lessons and all of these controlled environments where kids have zero time for play. And free play has been shown to be one of the most psychologically important things that our children need. Play is where we learn our place in the world. It's one thing if a parent or a teacher tells a child something. It's a completely whole other thing when a peer says to a child, hey, you know what? You're not so special. If you want to be nice, all right, sorry, if you want me to be nice to you, you have to be nice to me. That is where children learn their place in the world. And that's where they are so desperate for relatedness. And when we don't give kids a place to feel relatedness with other people, because we've hyper-scheduled them and there's no time for free play, guess what? They turn to social media. They turn to Facebook. They turn to Instagram. They turn to Snapchat because that's where they feel connected. It's no different from what we used to do being on the phone all evening, right? And our parents would say, get off the line, right? It's no different. And so we have to dive a layer deeper if we really want to help our kids we have to understand all of this leads to these internal triggers, these needs that they are not finding elsewhere. And so when they don't find those things in the real world, they get them in the online, in the virtual world. And that has to be where we start. And then we can implement these four steps of the indistractable model. Once we understand their internal triggers, we can help them make time for traction. We can help them hack back external triggers, and we can finally help them prevent distraction with PACT, which is the same exact four steps that we as parents need to take which is finally one of the most important things is that parents need to stop being hypocrites. It, you can't tell your kids to get off Fortnite when you're checking email on your phone. And so we have to stop being hypocrites ourselves and become indistractable to show our kids the example of what it means to do what we say we're going to do in life. Wow. Well, thank you for contributing to probably the most action-packed episode we've had here on Mind Love. I know that the book was so fascinating to me, and thats it's just one of the topics I've been diving into lately, because as our society evolves, as technology evolves, it's just so important to become aware of the negative impacts of that and how we can regain control. So in part of the ways we are in new territory with certain types of technology, but as we talked about today, it does go back to a deeper issue. So thank you so much for sharing all of this wisdom with us. And for listeners who are resonating with you, I will be linking to your book in the show notes, as well as some of the resources that you mentioned, including some of the other books. And where else can listeners connect with you online? Yeah, thank you. So my blog is called nearandfar.com. Near is spelled like my first name, N-I-R. So it's N-I-R and far.com. And if you visit indistractable.com, the name of the book is Indistractable, How to Control Your Attention and Choose Your Life. And if you go to indistractable.com, there are all kinds of complimentary resources that I couldn't put in the book. There's an 80-page workbook that's totally free that you can get that all at indistractable.com. 
All of the links in this episode are at mindlove.com slash 096. I'll link to Nir's book, his free resources that he's given you guys, the distraction tool, as well as the other books that he recommended. And if you haven't listened already, I highly recommend you go back and pair this episode with episode 89. They offer two complementary perspectives and action plans, and these episodes alone have really helped me get a handle on my own attention span. And if you know anyone that could really use this episode, you know, the person that keeps putting their dreams on hold or that can't hold a decent conversation because they're always doing something else, you know who that person is. (laughs) Share it with them or take a screenshot and share it on Instagram. If you tag Mind Love Podcast and Mind Love Melissa, I'll send you a voice message and we can have a little chat. And remember, tech can be amazing. There are so many companies doing good in the world or using technology to help us reconnect with ourselves, our lives, and the people in our lives. I share a few of those tools in episode 89, but I also want to share another one that I just discovered, and they are not paying me to say this, but it's so awesome I have to share it. So I am obsessed with meditating to binaural beats. I'm really sensitive to sound, so I can just feel the vibrations running through my scalp, and it feels amazing. Well, I was scrolling through Facebook and I saw an ad for this meditation cushion. It's like a bolster cushion that you see in yoga classes, one of those long ones that you can lay on or spoon or lean against. Well, it's connected to an app called Wave Meditation. And as it plays the binaural beats and the guided meditation, these vibrations will go through your back so that you can actually feel it. My favorite is when it says breathe in and then breathe out and it's almost like this rumbling but I swear it is so immersive and the first day I got it I meditated like five times for 15 minutes at a time but it's so amazing if you're having difficulty really starting up your meditation practice to find something that gets you excited about it. And this is one of those things. So even if you're not a meditator, you just might be. So I'll link to that in the show notes as well. But check it out because it's so much fun. Don't forget to hit subscribe before you exit out of the podcast app. And thanks for giving your mind a little love today. And I'll see you next week. Thanks for tuning into your higher frequency with Mind Love. Head to mindlove.com for a free gift to keep your vibes up until next week. 